0: Hi, this is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast. What we are doing over this series is exploring the personality of Jesus from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw. There is absolutely no one and nothing that is more captivating than Jesus when you can see him as he really is. And to know Jesus as he really is, is to fall in love with him. So what we're doing in this series, I am reading some excerpts from a new book called Beautiful Outlaw, discovering the playful, extravagant, disruptive personality of Jesus. And so let's explore Jesus together. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Wait a second. Six stone water jars holding up to 30 gallons each? That would be somewhere close to 180 gallons. John makes the point of saying that the jars were filled to the brim. 180 gallons equals 682 liters. That would be 908 bottles of wine. 908. I know, I know, it seems too extravagant, but the Scripture makes a point of telling us exactly how many urns there were, how much they held, and even pushes the point that they were filled to the brim. Apparently, the quantity Jesus produced is important to the story, and I'm certainly not going to begrudge Jesus the right to be generous. John says, He thus revealed His glory. What is it, exactly, that Jesus thus revealed? certainly his power over creation. But there's something else here, something beautiful. Jesus did not provide cheap wine, as the maitre d' expected, given the lateness of the hour, nor did he make a statement by substituting grape juice. He didn't just give them a little wine, say, a dozen bottles to wrap up the evening with one last toast. Jesus does it lavishly, to the tune of 908 bottles, just as the 153 fish the boys caught were specifically noted to be large fish. Here is the same stunning generosity we see pouring forth in creation. The whole earth is filled with His glory, from Isaiah 6, verse 3. Oh, the beauty of Jesus— The text declares he hadn't planned on revealing himself at this time. Might this help us with our own prayer lives? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus would not have urged us to pray if he were unapproachable. Bailing the groom out of an embarrassing situation wasn't Jesus' intention. My time has not yet come. But he does it anyway and not a bit grudgingly, 180 gallons of top-grade hooch late into the reception. The crowd has already emptied the cupboards. What is it, close to midnight at this point? This party is going to carry on for hours. What joy, what gladness, how generous and celebratory, just like sunshine. Think about it. What daily radiance is showered upon us. What immense golden goodness. Every single day, over so much of the earth, it saturates our world, warming the earth, raising the crops in the fields by silent resurrection, unfolding flowers, causing birds to break out in song with the dawning of each day. It bathes everything else in light, which then enables us to behold and enjoy to live and work and explore. What a gift sunlight is, coming and going. I love getting up in the darkness of early morning and praying through the dawn. As I find myself drawing nearer to God, the room begins to grow lighter and lighter while the spiritual air clears around me. With a final Amen, The golden glowing light of sunrise fills the room like the presence of God. We get hours of it every day, hundreds and hundreds of gallons. And then late in the afternoon, how beautiful things are when backlit. Autumn grains and grasses, full heads glowing as if every top were bursting with Shekinah glory. The gaudy splendor of sunset follows— and then the waiting period of night to help us appreciate the gift. Imagine if it were always night, if dawn never came. But it does come lavishly, faithfully, making our hearts glad once more. What a gift light is, and given in such abundance we can hardly take it in. What does sunshine tell us about the personality of Jesus? What does the gift of our senses tell us about Jesus? Summer has swept over Colorado. The aspens have fully leafed out after a very wet spring. All the groves are lush, and the breeze in their boughs sometimes sounds like a soft, gentle rain shower. And when a stronger wind blows, it sounds like the surf as it recedes across a pebble beach. What generosity would have created this? bough and leaf and breeze and the human ear just so that we can appreciate the subtleties of its exquisite sounds. What of touch, the tactical experiences that abound to us, the warmth of riverside stones baked by the sun. We love to hold them after a plunge in the cold water, letting the warmth radiate all the way into our bodies. The comfort of a human caress. And smell? Who would have thought of such a thing? The pungent earth after a rain, all creation washed and hung out like the laundry. And hearing? Rain on a tin roof? The laughter of your child? Music? And taste? Watermelon. Blue cheese. Tabasco. Coffee. Chocolate. There is a reason we are warned against gluttony. What generosity gave us so much? Beauty nearly answers every question. As Bonaventure wrote, "'Whoever, therefore, is not enlightened "'by such splendor of created things is blind. "'Whoever is not awakened by such outcries is deaf. "'Therefore, open your eyes, "'alert the ears of your spirit.' Open your lips and apply your heart concerning the mirror of things perceived through sensation. We can see God in them as he is in them. Now, yes, yes, sometimes creation screams a confusing message. Fear, pain, grief— Fires burn, rivers flood, winds go hurricane, the earth shudders so hard it levels cities. But you must remember this was not so in Eden. Mankind fell, surrendering this earth to the evil one. St. Paul says that creation groans for the day of its restoration. See Romans 8, making it clear that everything is not as it was meant to be. People come to terrible conclusions when they assume that this world is exactly as God intended, an assumption that has wrought havoc in the sciences. The earth is broken, which only makes the beauty that does flow so generously that much more astounding and reassuring. What do we make of the gift of water? You can swim in it, but also float upon it. You can drink it and surf it. Droplets fall from the sky in staggering abundance, and yet it also flows in streams and rivers. It makes one sound as a brook, another as a waterfall, and something else altogether in the silence of falling snow. This extravagance is almost scandalous. Remember, the heart of the artist is revealed in their work. Here and there and everywhere, the creations of Jesus explode like fireworks from a fairy tale over the earth. Dragonflies? Porcupines? Musk-ox. Their great shaggy kilts hanging round them and mighty horns swooping down look like creatures If not from Norse mythology, then certainly from ancient times. Not something walking around this moment just north of us? Really now, what do we have here? Who do we have here? The whole earth is filled with his glory. You must understand an important distinction. There is Christianity, and then there is church culture. They are not the same. Often, they are far from the same. The personality conveyed through much of Christian culture is not the personality of Jesus, but of the people in charge of that particular franchise. Tragically, the world looks at funny hats or big hair, gold thrones, purple curtains, stained glass or fog machines, and assumes that this is what Jesus must be like. When you are confronted with something from Christian culture, ask yourself, Is this true of the personality of the God of the wind and the desert, the God of sunshine and the open sea? This will dispel truckloads of religious nonsense. And by beginning his gospel here, John makes it clear that this is perfectly biblical. But we were talking about generosity, letting our eyes roam back and forth, as Shakespeare said, from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. From the Book of Nature to the Pages of the Gospels. Listen to these passages on the life of Jesus. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever Two blind men were sitting by a roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. One of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her, so that she will be healed and live. Because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Jesus entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it, and yet he could not keep his presence a secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. Do you see this? Late at night, early in the morning, walking down the road in the middle of his supper, at home abroad, Jesus offers. His time, his words, his touch, flowing like the wine at Cana. To appreciate the reality of it all, remember, this is not Superman. Remember his loneliness— His weariness, his humanity, this is utterly remarkable, particularly in light of the fact that this is a man on a life-or-death mission. He is lavish with himself. And that's the key right there. That giving of himself, that is what is so precious. Moses offered leadership and tirelessly. Solomon handed out the rarest of wisdom free of charge. Pilate seemed willing to toss to the crowds anyone they wanted. But Jesus gives himself. This is, after all, what he came to give and what we most desperately need. Jesus points to a field of wheat. Now imagine trying to count the number of kernels in one acre. Immeasurable abundance. Turning our gaze to those luxuriant fields, he says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over, from John 12 in the message. The point he is making is that he has come to share his life with us. But again, as soon as I say that, the old religious associations rush in to fog the reality. Okay, so imagine walking through a rainforest or diving over a coral reef. Simply look through a microscope at a drop of pond water. Creation is pulsing with life. It is the life of Jesus, given generously for the life of all things. He is called the author of life, who personally sustains all things. From Acts 3 and Hebrews 1. This is the life He offers us. This is the extravagance with which He offers it. Jesus doesn't only give His life for mankind. He also gives His life to mankind. It is showered upon us daily like manna. We'll come back to this in a moment. For now, we'll simply notice that the man was generous, extravagant. He still is. Disruptive honesty. In order to grasp the wildness of this next vignette, I want you to imagine that you have received an invitation to dine at the home of an influential diplomat. The governor or your ambassador will do. A number of dignitaries will be present, bishops of the church, Supreme Court justices, a prime minister. How would your insides feel as you rang the bell? How self-conscious would you be of your appearance, your manners? Alas, thirty seconds after you walk through the door, there is an awkward moment of tension, a delicate matter about forgetting to return the bow of the Dalai Lama. Your host is speechless. You can see from the look on everyone's face that you have committed something a step or two beyond an embarrassing faux pas. What would you say? How would you respond? When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, and so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. From Luke chapter 11. Jesus has just entered this man's home, having accepted an invitation to dinner. Every guest who has ever passed through those doors has washed their hands before being seated, slavishly observing a custom unbroken for centuries. It is a test of orthodoxy and solidarity. Jesus knows this, knows that they are watching his every move. He walks right past the line at the wash basin and makes himself comfortable at the table. The Pharisee apparently is speechless. Jesus reads the look on his face and offers an explanation. Oh, the washing bit, he says as he takes a piece of flatbread, breaks a bite off and chews it. It completely clouds the issue. Outwardly, you look sensational. But inwardly, your heart is full of extortion and evil. The things Jesus says. Apparently, he's not concerned about being invited back may I remind you that whenever you are watching Jesus, you are watching love. You can always hold that up as you encounter startling passages like this one. I am at this very moment watching love in action. But how in the world is this love? It doesn't even seem polite. Permit me a digression. That will help. Several years ago, a beautiful and intelligent young woman whom we love very much— began tumbling into a mental breakdown. All those who loved her watched in agony as she became increasingly obsessive, delusional, and depressed. She spiraled downward. We feared for her life. One by one, friends and family would make an attempt over coffee or just dropping by to bring her back to reality. Her dismissals were offered in such irrational ways, we knew that she would soon have to be hospitalized. This is a heartbreaking thing to stand by and watch, helpless, like watching someone fall through the ice. We arranged what has become known in the mental health community as an intervention, a gathering of friends and mentors in a united effort to jolt an individual to reality, or, failing that, to insist that the person submit to treatment. We began gently. She tossed off our concerns. We became more and more direct. She shifted to self-defense. Finally, we had to be brutally honest and insistent. And even then, she could not grasp the stark reality of her own desperate condition. It was an awkward, painful, and loving thing to do. I'm sorry to say she had to collapse even further before she would accept help. Jesus' three years of public ministry are one long Intervention. That's why he acts the way he does. Remember, Jesus is not strolling through the Israeli countryside offering poetry readings. He is on a mission to rescue a people who are so utterly deceived, most of them don't even want to be rescued. His honesty and severity are measured out precisely according to the amount of delusion and self deception encasing his listener. When a soul is encrusted, with pride, bigotry, self-righteousness, and intellectual elitism, as was his dinner host, then that shell does need to be struck hard at times in order to cause a crack that might allow in some light. Jesus strikes with the precision of Michelangelo. At another dinner engagement, this one at the home of two now-famous sisters, Jesus is pulled into a sibling rivalry. As they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. From Luke chapter 10. Jesus is a sharp enough man to know not to stick his head in a hornet's nest. These family quarrels have a long, tangled history, like Middle Eastern politics. Come to think of it, these quarrels are the long, tangled history of Middle Eastern politics. Martha demands that Jesus take sides. He does, but not as she expected. He takes her side by speaking to what is going on inside. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Jesus is the guest, by the way, in her home. She made the dinner. If it were me, I would have probably tried to diffuse the tension by offering to help Martha myself, skirt the issue, but that would leave Martha in her self-righteous snit. I absolutely love the loving courage of this man to say what everyone else knows but won't say. Jesus' tone seems very different here than with the earlier Pharisee. This is a softer blow, and that is because he is dealing with a softer heart. You get the sense that Martha, though snarky at the moment, would immediately be softened by the truthfulness of his words. This is their first reported encounter, but the sisters and their brother Lazarus go on to become close friends of Jesus. Martha's home is his first choice of refuge whenever he's traveling near Jerusalem. Apparently, his disruptive words were just the right touch at just the right moment. Now, in order to appreciate how beautiful this is, think of how rarely it occurs and how even more rarely it is done well. Most people go through their entire lives without anyone ever speaking honest, loving, direct words to the most damaging issues in their lives. Pause for a moment and count the times this has been done for you. Better, pause and count the times you have offered this to someone you love. You've been listening to an excerpt from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw, and we are so excited to tell people about this Jesus, that we've got special offers for you. We've got a book trailer for you to share with your friends. You can email it around to your groups or post it on Facebook. We've got videos. For more information on all of this, including online events, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.